Well, as we begin our time in the Word of God, I'll ask you to bow with me once again and ask God to attend to our study. Father, we thank you for today. Once again, we are grateful to be here. We know without you, we understand nothing from you, and your Spirit superintends our time, and we, as your people, have the illumination of your Spirit. Understand that. We understand that we need that in our lives so that we might know what your word teaches. So, Lord, we ask you to attend to our time. We know that you are honored through the proclamation of your word. Honor your name as we hear it and speak it this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're not there already, I'll ask you to take your Bibles and open them to our study of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, we find ourselves this morning returning once again to verses 5 through 38, that rather large section in the beginning of chapter 1, and this morning we will be honing our attention in on verses 26 to 38. We already covered those other verses, verses 5 through 25, and so this morning I want to focus our attention, to, or to begin to focus our attention on verses 26 to 38. And so I want to read those verses for us, so that we have them in our minds. Luke, writing as the faithful historian, says, Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city, to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And so the angel departed from her. Now I know from talking to many of you that many of you love literature, you love to read. And for those of you who love literature, it would be in fact an unending task for not only you, but any person who loves any kind of reading to go about searching through all of the books of the world, all that has ever been written about any kind of thing, whereby coming to the end of that search, if you could even accomplish such a search, that you would find a more riveting account in all of the stories that were before you than the one you find right here in Luke's Gospel. As the late J.C. Ryle once said, quote, In these verses we have the announcement of the most marvelous event that has ever happened in this world. The incarnation and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, unquote. He's right. He's right. It's an incredible account, not because it's about Jesus Christ, not because it's about the incarnation of the Lord. It is incredible in its accounting because these are actual events given to us by God. That's what makes it incredible. That's what makes it the most astounding of all things ever told to man. This is the recounting of actual events by God concerning the great unfolding of His redemption of His people. In fact, 
the Old Testament prophesies that there are being the Old Testament prophecies, I should say, are being fulfilled in this very event. And you can look at any of them, but you cannot stop looking at them until you get all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. This is where it all begins. Genesis chapter 3, the time when God said to the serpent in the garden, quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Interestingly enough, when it comes to human creation and the procreation of man, the women don't provide the seed, the man does. And yet here is God in Genesis chapter 3 saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed to the evil one, Satan himself, and her seed. In other words, something miraculous had to happen. Something miraculous must take place in order for her to even have that take place. And so the hope that was given through that first promise has never died. Even through the passage of thousands of years, that promise has burned in the hearts of the faithful who have believed, knowing that one day, one day all of it would come to full fruition. In fact, the Apostle Paul had this on on his mind when he spoke to those in Galatia who were being challenged by those who did not believe in a gospel by faith alone, but thought about a gospel that was faith in Jesus plus your efforts. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 said, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? So that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You see, that's always been the grand plan. It's always been the heart of God. The plan of God to redeem His people. And so as we begin, we must remember that. We must have that in our minds. This is not the parading of human history. This is not something that man accomplished. This is a recognition of the marvelous and the miraculous accomplishment of God. That's what this is. This is the most monumental event about the greatest person in the history of the world. And he comes into the earth, into his creation as a human being to live among his creation as one of them so that he might save them all that He might save all who would ever believe upon Him by faith for the penalty of their sin. And it's interesting as you read this, you would think with that kind of historical understanding, with that kind of backdrop, that all of this would take place with a whole lot of fanfare and a whole lot of hoopla, a whole lot of grand picturing you would think that the entire world would be, cle- be completely attuned to what is going on. That every person who ever lived on the face of the earth during that time would know exactly what is happening. That there would be somehow some kind of lights in the sky. That the earth would somehow fully shake everywhere all at once so that you would be unmistaking of what was happening. God doesn't do that. That's not how God would have it. There are no bright lights. There are no crowds. There have not been prior weeks of advertising that has gone out saying that you should wait for the day. This day is going to be very important. This is going to be the most important day you've ever known throughout your life. So pay attention. Wait for it to come. It's happening. None of that is going on. All of this takes place with a young, unknown girl. Probably about 13 or 14 years old, by the way. In a house that is located in a nondescript town. 
in an undesired region of the country, away from the religious center, out in the middle of nowhere. If you were a Jewish person who was under the teaching of the synagogue, then you would be familiar with what the Old Testament prophets said about the coming of the Messiah. You would understand that these things were about to happen. You would know that Genesis chapter 49 verse said, verse 10 says that Shiloh would come. Shiloh would come. Shiloh is the Hebrew word that means, in essence, the rightful owner. The rightful owner will come, the one to whom it belongs. In other words, there was coming a day when the one who owned it all, when the rightful owner of it all, the true king, the everlasting ruler, the Messiah, he would come and take ownership of what is rightfully his. You knew that. You knew what the psalmist said in Psalm 2, Today I have begotten thee, and that that referred to Yahweh's holy son. You certainly would be familiar with the prophet Isaiah and all that, pro- all that he said, saying that a child would be born, a son would be given, and the government would be upon his shoulders, and his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the increase of his government as king would have no end. You knew that prophecy. You knew what Isaiah 53 said about the suffering servant and how he would pay the penalty for the sins of his people. And so here you are as a young girl. Here you are as a young Jewish maiden. The day has come. A day that you believed would happen. Though you don't know the details, you don't know the timing, you've just heard the prophets of old speak about these things, and now God intervenes into His creation once again to show that nothing is impossible with God. This is where we must begin as we think about this text. Really, the the honing part of all of this is really found in verse 37, and we're not even going to get there to this that today, but we need to understand that as the, the foundation upon which all of this stands, even going back to where we started back in verse 1 of chapter 1. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Now, This morning, I want us to hang our thoughts on seven aspects that are found here in this accounting. Seven aspects so that we might go away with a greater understanding of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and a greater understanding and solidifying in our minds that nothing actually is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Seven aspects that help us understand that better. The first aspect is this, the plan, the plan. You notice verse 26, it says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. We know who Gabriel is. We've been introduced to Gabriel already. He was just a few verses ago visiting Zacharias as Zacharias was carrying out his duties as a priest in the temple. He's offering the sacrifice or the prayers of the people in the incense offering inside the holy place. And you remember that Zacharias had, or that Gabriel had come to Zacharias, it said in our text, from the presence of God. And he came with good news, good news. Zacharias' prayers had been answered. He was faithful to pray to God year after year after year, day after day. His nation was to be prepared for the Savior. And that preparation was to come through a son, a son miraculously that was going to come through the means of his barren wife. In other words, God was about to do a miracle. God was about to 
enter into, if you will, the normal operation of creation that God had set in motion and caused something to happen that would never happen by natural circumstances. God was about to do a miracle. It would be through the home of Zacharias because nothing is impossible with God. Zacharias sadly didn't believe it. He didn't believe it. That is shocking to our ears. It's shocking to our ears. It shouldn't really be all that shocking because we're really like Zacharias many times in many days. Right? As those who believe upon Jesus Christ, we understand Zacharias was a godly person. He was a godly man. He was a man of God. In fact, the text tells us that he and his wife were both righteous in the sight of God. No one is righteous by means of their own character. We understand that from Scripture. Not one is righteous before God. No one, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, quoting from the Old Testament, in other words, righteousness is only attributed to someone when it is an imputed righteousness of God's to their very character. And it's because they had believed what God had promised. They were believers. They had believed God. And yet here is Zacharias in a moment of sin, not believing God's message. And last week we were exhorted in that text to take warning to ourselves at how detrimental it is for us as believers to not believe implicitly what God says. Zacharias was silenced by God. A priest who was to proclaim the blessings on, upon God's people. He would remain that way until eight days after John is born. That was the Normal time for naming your child, you would bring him to the temple and you would name him that day on the day of circumcision. Zacharias is unable to hear, he's unable to talk until that very day. The son that he was told he was going to have, all of that happened just as God said. God's word was exactingly true. Why? Because nothing's impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And now, here we are in our text for this morning. Six months have passed since Gabriel was dispatched to Zacharias. And now Gabriel is sent once again from the presence of God with a message from God. A message that was true in every way as it was true before to Zacharias. And just like before, it was a message that would seem to be humanly impossible. The promise of God to Zacharias has been shown to be true. You remember what it says in verse 23, after the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home and Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months. Seclusion just means she, she, she hid the reality of her pregnancy. It doesn't mean she stayed in the tent or the house that they were in for five months, never seeing anybody, never letting anybody come to her. It was that she hid the reality of her pregnancy. You women know what that's like, what you can do for that. That's what she was doing. She was in seclusion for five months. And so verse 26 says, in the sixth month, so that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. That's what that means. And it says, notice, that Gabriel was, once again, sent from God. That is an important detail that we must highlight in our minds every time we see it. What is about to be said, the detail that we are about to be given, we don't want to miss. Why? Because the source is God. The message is God's message. Now that's something that I want to always have in my mind as I walk through this account and through Luke's gospel. It's what I want to have in my mind anytime I open the Word of God. This is God's message. This is God speaking. 
And I tried to stress that as we began our study some weeks ago. Right? This is not coming to us from the mind of man. It is not originating in the mind of man. And I say that simply to emphasize that this is not humanly produced information about Jesus and how he became human. This is God's information. This is from God. All that we hear, things that we hear throughout the accounting of this, and as we go on through Luke's gospel, may seem somewhat unconventional at times to our way of thinking. It may not match our logic and how we might think through something. It may even come across as crazy in its details. In fact, even here this morning, a virgin becomes pregnant without a seed of man? That's crazy. That's insanity. And if that was simply man's information, it would be crazy. In fact, it would be absolutely impossible, but this is not from man, beloved. This comes directly from God. This is God's facts about this event. This is God's facts about this event, and that is key for us. That is absolutely key for us as we think about this passage and all that follows, because that will solidify your belief if you will always keep that in mind as you as a Christian walk by faith. Right? As we walk in belief and we keep in our mind and our heart that these are from God, it will solidify our faith. What you are believing is God's words. What you are believing is God's words. You're no different than anyone in the Old Testament that believed what God said. Luke is recording the truth about God's intervention into the world that God created just as God made it happen. You notice the emphasis there? This is God's words as he intervened into his world and how he made it happen. So right here in front of us is the actual accounting of the greatest moment in human history. And it is coming through the dispatched angel straight from God. Remember, this is Gabriel. Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. This is his job. That's what he does. He stands in the presence of God and he waits for God to dispatch him with his word. That is Gabriel's job. That is his task. That's what he does. He does it unfailingly. And this is always what he does. Notice he doesn't hesitate to obey. It's the sixth month and Gabriel was sent from God. And the next thing you know, Gabriel's there giving the message. There's no hesitation. There's no sense in which time had passed. This is the sixth month. And we know it is all of that because as you go down the text, Mary goes to see Elizabeth in the sixth month. So not a lot, no time has passed. Gabriel is dispatched and Gabriel goes. Why? Because that's what Gabriel does. He immediately comes down from being in the presence of God. And the plan from eternity past is now in motion. And he comes to the second aspect, the place. Comes to the place. Verse 26 says, he was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. He comes down out of heaven to a city in what is known today as Israel, to a city in Galilee. Why is it stated that way? Why isn't it stated that Gabriel was sent from God to Nazareth? Why is it to a city in Galilee? named Nazareth or called Nazareth. Why is it labeled like that? Well, simply for this reason, because if the region isn't mentioned, the region of Galilee isn't mentioned, no one knows where this is. Particularly Theophilus, to whom Luke is primarily writing. He wouldn't have known anything about Nazareth. That was the geographical heritage of the city of Nazareth. 
It was unknown to most people. So you can't really call Nazareth a city. It's called here a city in Galilee. It's not really a city, but the Greek language had no other word for calling the place where people lived other than the word polis, which is city. It didn't matter the size, they were all referred to as cities. But it wasn't a city like you and I might think of a city. It wasn't like Boston or some other place that we know as a city. It was more like a country village. In fact, Nazareth probably had less people in it than the little country village in which we are holding church today. Small town located in the region known as Galilee. Galilee was a known region. It was a known region. Everyone knew where Galilee was as a region. But they wouldn't necessarily have known about Nazareth. That's how nondescript Nazareth was. That's how in the middle of nowhere, if you will, it was. It was a small hamlet of people off the beaten path located about 15 miles east of the Mediterranean coastline and probably 50 plus miles north of Jerusalem. In other words, Nazareth was not going to be your next place that you planned your vacation. You wouldn't get on Google and say, man, I'm going to go to this place called Nazareth because it's the happening place. It wasn't there. There was no one clamoring to go to Nazareth. And on top of that, it was in Galilee. To the south was almost uninhabitable desert for miles. To the east was another desert that was nearly uncrossable. And to the west was the sea. And for the most part, there was mostly a Gentile population that surrounded the entire region. And just that very fact alone made it the disdain to the greater population of Jews that were around. You say, really? Yes. You remember what Nathaniel said to his brother Philip who came to him when they found Jesus? They, he said, Nathaniel or Philip said to them, we found the one, one of the one to which the prophets and Moses spoke about, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That was the collective view. If you knew of Nazareth at all, you thought it was just a place that was filled up with nothing but bad things. That was its reputation. And so it's incredible to me It ought to be incredible to us that God, the God of the universe, the God of all creation, would come to such a place, a place surrounded by Gentiles, a place held in disgust by most Jews, in order to bring the message about the birth of His Son. But remember what I said when we began? Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And so the plan of God from eternity past is being executed. Gabriel has come down to the place, a little unknown town named Nazareth, and he goes to the person which he has been sent. This is aspect number three, the person. You have the plan, you have the place, Now he goes to the person, notice verse 27, he goes to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And you notice that Luke is very specific. Luke is very specific, he gives us details, and he lists four details about her. He says, number one, she's a virgin. Number two, she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. Number three, she is of the descendants of David. Number four, she is named Mary. Let's just look at these. First of all, she's a virgin. She's a virgin. In fact, it's mentioned there a couple of times. She's a virgin. To a virgin engaged to a man who's named Joseph, and the virgin's name was Mary. Actually, the word in the original is Parthenos, the original language. It just means maiden, maiden. 
mentioned, like I said, twice. Why? Because God wants that emphasized. God wants that emphasized. Why? Because nothing is impossible with God. Right? Verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. He mentions twice about who she is, and we have to understand that. This is a principle of Bible study. When something is repeated in Scripture, what? You pay attention. Pay attention to it. You put up your ears. In other words, Mary was a young woman who has never been with a man in any kind of sexual behavior whatsoever. Now, just that point alone is setting the stage for the unbelievableness of this account. The fact that she's a virgin, that she has never in any kind of way had any kind of sexual contact with any kind of man her entire short life is setting the stage that all that is taking place from a human standpoint is absolutely unbelievable if we come to it with our mind like that. We come to it thinking this must be answered from a human perspective with human kind of thinking, then we will be wrong because it's not. This is coming straight from God. And so God makes it an emphasis with that very fact. She is a virgin. She's a virgin. She's a maiden. She's never been with a man ever. Takes us back, harkens us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. She's a virgin. Secondly, notice that she is engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Some of your translations may say betrothed to a man named Joseph. What is betrothal? What is betrothal? It's not a word we use today, at least not oftentimes in our Western world. But it was very common in ancient times. Betrothal was actually engagement. That's why the translators of the New American Standard use that word, to a virgin engaged, to someone betrothed. But it it was an engagement that was more than what we see engagement today. It had an actual legal binding requirement upon the person almost in the similar way as if they were already married. They were already married. Now, according to Roman law, Rome was the ruling government over the entire region at that time. Rome had gained power of the world. They were the rulers of the day. And according to Roman law, the minimum age for girls to be betrothed to a man and then married was 12. 12. Right? For boys, it was 14. I don't know why the difference is there. We can assume a lot of kinds of things, probably because boys are dumber than girls when they're in their young age. So, if that's not shocking enough that it's 12... Think about Augustus. Augustus, being a Roman emperor at the time, declared the minimum age to be 10. 10. Think of it. Think of it, you who have younger kids. 10 years old. 10 years old, you could be betrothed to be married. You could have your parents who knew other parents who had arranged this betrothal to take place, and at age 10, it was legal and binding. The Jews, however, kept the age around 12 to 14. And why do I say all that? I, I say all that simply to say, here's this teen girl who by law and rightly so at the time in this binding relationship with this young teen boy, all of this has been arranged by the parents, the betrothal time They are betrothed to one another, and the betrothal time, by the way, would be one year. And then after that one year, there would be a week-long celebration called the marriage celebration or the marriage feast. That would take place, and the two would be formally married at the end of that and begin their life together. During that year, the young boy would be at the father's house where he lived, and he would be building onto the father's house their place where they would live. So he would be preparing their home, And she would be ensuring 
that she was pure by remaining a virgin. So here's this young virgin girl who is in this binding relationship with this boy named Joseph. By the way, Joseph's name implies someone who will have many children. And the text continues to say, notice, of the descendants of David. He went to a virgin, engaged to a man named Joseph, of the descendants of David. Now the question is, and maybe you've been asking this question as you've been reading through this text, maybe you haven't, but I have to ask this question. I have to give us what it's, what it's saying. The question is, who's that speaking of? Is that speaking of Joseph or is that speaking of the engaged virgin? Is it speaking of Joseph or is it speaking of Mary? Many say that it's speaking of Joseph, that that phrase there is modifying Joseph. He's of the descendants of David, but I'm not so sure of that, at least here in this text. I'm not declining the reality that Joseph was of the descendants of David. We know that. Matthew is clear on that through the genealogy as well as through the fact that that Joseph went to the county seat, if you will, of his own uh, name, which was Bethlehem, because he was of the household of David. So we know that. But you say, well, why are you unsure whether this is speaking of Joseph or Mary? Because the main character in this verse is the virgin. In other words, she is the one to whom Gabriel has been sent. In other words, she is the grammatical object of Gabriel's intention. Not Joseph. Joseph is a side note. Joseph's introduced as a person to whom she's engaged. And therefore, I would suggest that Luke is mentioning that to show us her heritage. That not only is Joseph of the line of David, as is clear from Matthew, but also Mary is of the line of David. And I think you get a little more clarity on this even when you go to chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, we give a genealogy of Jesus. And it begins by saying, verse 23, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. And it goes down through an entire genealogy of Jesus, only listing men because women were never listed in genealogies. And so he's supposedly the son of Joseph. He's not the, the biological son of Joseph, but Joseph's listed here in order to show Jesus as being the son of God. Joseph is only introduced as a person to whom she's engaged. And there's no doubt that he's from the line of David. But we have to remember that Luke is highlighting Mary's story throughout the first chapters. And Joseph's there but he's there in a supporting role. And so I believe that this phrase is actually modifying or it's saying something about her. It's about Mary. It's about the engaged virgin. In other words, Gabriel came to a virgin. He came to one of the descendants of David who happened to be this virgin. And her name was, number four, Mary, it says. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, Mary means exalted one. That's what her name means. Exalted one. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting. All of the information we have about Mary, right? All that could have been said about her, all the information that we get from God through Gabriel about her is her physical condition, she's a virgin, and her name, Mary. That's it. That's all we get. It doesn't say that she is Mary the sinless one. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say it anywhere. Search the scriptures, you won't find that. It doesn't say Mary is a sinless one. It doesn't say Mary the one who is to be prayed to so that her son Jesus can do what he does. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say Mary the one who was born sinless. Let me say that anywhere. It doesn't even intimate that anywhere. There is nothing here to describe her in any special way. 
In fact, it doesn't even say what it said about Zacharias and Elizabeth. It said of Zacharias and Elizabeth that they were righteous in the sight of God. That phrase isn't added here to Mary. God just gives us her name, Exalted One. The plan is being carried out. Gabriel has gone to the place, Nazareth of Galilee, and now we know the person, Mary. Aspect number four. Aspect number four, the pronouncement. The pronouncement. We have the plan, we have the place, we have the person. Now we hear the pronouncement. Notice verses 28 to 33. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, I don't have to say to any of us here thinking this morning, there's so much here in just that section that I'm just going to introduce it to us this morning. There's no way that you and I have time to cover all of this in our time left this morning. I'll just introduce it to us all and we can get the rest next time. But, but notice verse 28. Notice verse 28. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. So here is Mary at home. This young girl at home doing what young girls would have done at home during the time before Jesus had entered the earth. Probably some domestic task. She's probably helping out her mother. And coming into the environment is this supernatural being. No knock. Just coming in. To say the least, this is not a normal day at home. This is just not a normal day. Right? And he begins to speak and he says, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, no one is there with her. And all of a sudden, the angel Gabriel enters the house and he says, Hello. Hello. That's the essence of the word there, Kairu. What it means in the original language, it's just a generic greeting. That's all it is. It's a generic greeting. It would be like you or I coming to someone and saying, hello. Now think about it. If an angel out of the presence of God showed up in your house and simply said, hello, trust me, you'd be freaking out. You would be losing your mind. Right? Hi. Hi. That's just not normal when it comes from the supernatural. Hi. Hello. I, I don't want to oversimplify what is happening here. But I can only imagine my, my mind goes off in these sanctified speculations. Sometimes we do that. God must have told Gabriel. Now, Gabriel, take it easy. Right, take it easy. I mean, this is a frail teenager. You know, tone it back a little bit. Tone it back. I don't want her to totally lose it. Now, I, I believe Mary knew that, that he wasn't from the human realm. You say, why? Because the next verse tells us that her immediate response was that she was greatly troubled at the statement that he's making. It's not he's troubled, she's troubled at his appearing. 
She's troubled because this guy's there and he's just happens. I, I don't know who this guy is, but he just says, hey, hello. No, she's troubled at his statement. What statement is that? What statement is she troubled at? The one in verse 28. Hail, favored one. The Lord is with you. She's troubled at that statement. That is, let me just put it in our times. That's shocking to her that anyone would have that statement said to them. Now, I have to talk about a few things as we go on because this has been one of the most abused and misused statements in all of church history. Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. In fact, the false religion of Roman Catholicism has used it as a foundational doctrine for the worship of Mary. The Roman Catholic Church takes the phrase, Hail Mary, favored one, or Hail favored one, they simply insert Mary, and they unjustifiably translate it as, Hail Mary, full of grace. That's what they translate it as. In fact, that comes from the Latin Vulgate translation of this verse, which is where they get most of their understanding. That translation, beloved, has spawned a heresy that has sealed the sinful fate of millions that bow to that kind of teaching. The whole blasphemous system of Mariolatry can be traced back to this very verse. Hail Mary, full of grace. You say, why? Why? Because this verse does not teach that Mary is full of grace. It does not teach that because that idea carries the idea that she is the one who dispenses grace to others. And that is a blasphemy. That is what Roman Catholicism teaches. That Mary is the dispenser of grace. That she is full of grace and thereby bestows that grace upon others. In other words, according to the Roman Catholic Church, Mary is the source of grace. She's the source of grace. She has to give it to others. But beloved, I'm here this morning to tell you that is not what Gabriel means by what he is saying. That is not what he is saying to Mary, and that is not what he is implying about Mary. In fact, Mary is not the source of grace. Mary is the recipient of grace. She is the recipient of grace. Hail, favored one. In other words, hello, Mary. You have been shown favor by God. You have been shown grace. You have been given grace by God. So this isn't a statement as much about Mary as it is about the grace of God. Mary, you have been chosen by God to receive His grace. To receive His grace. She's not the bestower of grace. Mary is just like you or I. She is the receiver of grace. So let me say with clarity here this morning so that none of us are confused. Mary has no grace to give. Mary has no grace to give. She is not the giver of grace. She is the receiver of grace. And Mary will never be able to hear anybody's prayers. In fact, she has never heard any, and there are no dead saints who will ever hear any prayers. Why? Because it's God who hears prayers. And so Gabriel says to Mary, you are going to receive grace. Notice why. Notice why she's receiving any grace from God. It's all found in the second phrase, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Listen, we, we have to understand this. That's the only way grace comes to us, folks. 
It doesn't come by a dead saint. It doesn't come through someone who has claimed to be somehow never do anything evil in their whole life by the perspective of man, and so therefore they can grant grace upon you. No, the only way grace comes, it comes by means of the Lord being with us. Why? Why is that the case? Because unless God is with us, we don't deserve grace. Unless God is with us, we don't deserve grace. We are all unworthy of His grace, and so was Mary. She was a condemned sinner, just like all of us. And she needed to be enveloped in the grace of God. By the way, if she wasn't a sinner, she wouldn't need grace. But Luke tells us that she was to receive grace from the only one who can dispense grace, from the Lord being with her. He's the dispenser of grace. He's the one who grants grace. She was favored not because of her. She was favored because the Lord was with her. Listen, as a Christian, beloved, as a Christian, you cannot give grace to anybody, can you? Can you give your grace away that God has so graciously shined upon you through Jesus Christ? Can you give that to anybody? Oh, no, we'd like to. We'd like to be able to give it to our kids so they too would be saved. We'd like to give it to our parents who don't believe because we want them to be saved. We'd like to give it to our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers who don't know any of it. We'd like to be able to dispense that, but that is not our job. Our job is to preach the gospel, which concerns the one who will give them grace if they will repent. The dispenser of grace, Jesus Christ. We can't give our grace to anyone. Mary is just like us. Only God gives grace. Notice it was that statement. It was the statement that she was the receiver of grace. That she was the one who was receiving grace. That the Lord was with her that was so greatly troubling to her. How could that be said? That's what's troubling her. How can that be said? The only way it can be said is the Lord is with you. It was that very statement that troubled her more than even standing in the presence of Gabriel, this supernatural being who comes in and says, hey, what's up? Why? Because like you and I, being the recipient of God's grace ought to stun us more than anything else. The fact that God would shine His grace upon us through Jesus Christ ought to be the most shocking thing we've ever heard. Isn't this exactly what the Apostle Paul says to the Galatian believers? Isn't this exactly what he said? I, in chapter 1 of Galatians, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by what? The grace of Christ for a different gospel. I'm surprised that you would so quickly turn your back on the reality of where grace comes from and in whom grace is dispensed. I'm so surprised that you would quickly turn your back on Jesus Christ for this other nonsense that is infiltrating who you are, which in reality is not another gospel at all, he says, but only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, Paul says, even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul says, listen, we preach to you the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ alone. Believe upon Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what we preach to you. And if we come and tell you something different, even if an angel from heaven comes and proclaims something different, listen, that's a lie. That's an absolute lie. They are accursed. 
Paul says in verse 9, as we have said before, so I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. Why? Because we don't preach a gospel which is according to man. We don't preach a gospel like that. We preach a gospel that came to us from God. A gospel concerning His Son. A gospel of grace. A gospel that comes through Jesus Christ. It is salvation in Christ alone. That seems absolutely impossible. How could anyone who is guilty before God ever be made right before God? The only way that it can come, and that is through grace. By grace, through faith. Being a recipient of God's grace ought to stun us more than anything else. But nothing's impossible with God, is it? Nothing is impossible with God. Praise God for His amazing grace. Because God could have left us just as we are. God could have said, fine, have it your way. Fine, you don't want me as you started in the garden? I I won't do anything. Have it your way. But God, because God is a God of grace, because God is a God of mercy, because God is a God of justice, He sent His Son to satisfy His justice so that He might shine His grace through Christ upon all who believe. This is what shocked Mary. This is what stunned her more than anything. She wasn't troubled like Zacharias because there was a supernatural being standing right there in that place, someone she didn't know before, and he's talking and he's given a message. No, that's not what shocked her. What shocked her was the reality that grace could be shown to her, a sinner. Oh, sure, she'd never been with a man in any kind of sexual way, but certainly in her short life she had sinned in ways That would have been deserving of the divine justice of God upon her life. And yet here is God saying, Hail, favored one. Hail, favored one. Oh, what a blessing of grace. Nothing is impossible with God, is it? Nothing. We are standing here this morning. We We are here in this place. Those of us who believe upon Jesus Christ, we are trophies of the grace of God. Trophies of His grace. We're not dispensers of it. We are receivers of it. And Mary is no different. Well, we've seen the plan. We know the place. We know the person. We've heard the pronouncement, at least part of it. At least part of it. So much more needs to be said. Praise God, we'll be back here next week. Lord willing, right? I'll just kind of give you a precursor. We're going to not only see the rest of the pronouncement, we're going to see the perplexity. We're going to see the proclamation. And we're going to see the profound reality. So we'll have the plan, the place, the person, the pronouncement, the perplexity, the proclamation, and the profound reality. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for your grace. We thank You that nothing is impossible with You. That while we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins, You, by Your mercy and grace, through the justice that You exacted upon Your Holy Son on the cross, our penalty for sin could be paid. That His righteousness could be given to us and our guilt given to Him so that He could pay for our sin and we could have life in Your name. Lord, we believe that. We trust it. We ponder it with with amazement, just as Mary did. Lord, we thank You for the testimony of Your Word. We thank You for dispatching Your agent to come and share this wonderful message as He preached the good news to her, just as He did to Zacharias. Thank You for the message of grace. Thank You for giving us grace in Christ. Lord, as You are 
merciful, draw those who do not know you by grace to yourself, that they too might believe. No longer living in their sin, no longer under the wrath that they so deserve. Placing their trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, they would find life and find it abundantly. And for those of us here who know Jesus Christ, who already believe, who have been drawn by you and express faith in Jesus Christ, we just want to proclaim the gospel. We just want to be that conduit of truth so that others might come to know the Savior. Help us do that with courage, faithfulness. Let us be that instrument of your grace to others, just as you have shown to us. We love you and we thank you for salvation in Christ alone and for the truthness, truthfulness of your word. We pray these things because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.